But let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. And as we continue in our study, we come this morning to Revelation chapter 4. And my goal uh, this morning is to cover Revelation 4 verses 1 through uh, 11. And the title of the message this morning is Before the Throne of God Above. Before the Throne of God Above. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul uh, speaks of an occasion in which he was taken up into the third heaven and heard uh, wonderful things. And we can only imagine the things that the Apostle Paul saw and heard on that occasion when he was taken up into the third heaven. Uh, But just when we think that he's about to tell us what he experienced when he was in the third heaven, he then tells us that he's not allowed to share. He's not allowed to tell us the things that he heard. But fortunately for us, the Apostle John is allowed to tell us what he experienced on the occasion we're going to see today when he is brought into the very heavenly throne room of God Almighty. And he is allowed to tell us the things that he sees and hears. And what we find in Revelation 4 and 5 is a record of that heavenly visit And these are astonishing chapters for us to read. One writer says, John here in Revelation 4 and 5 offers a dazzling vision which pushes the boundaries of human imagination. In fact, there is no way for us with our human imaginations to truly visualize the actuality of what John was beholding even though he does his best to describe what he saw for us. If you enjoy finding key words in the text of the Bible, then our chapter today is a dream come true. In Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we see the word throne 14 times in the Greek text of this chapter. And the theme of thrones in this chapter should not really surprise us given how Revelation chapter 3 ended. In the second from the last verse of Revelation 3, Jesus speaks to the Laodicean church, and he says in verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And then... Coming into Revelation chapter 4, John says in verse 2, Behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. In verse 3, John says that there was a rainbow around the throne. In verse 4, he says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. In verse 5, he says, out from the throne came flashes of lightning. He tells us 
Also, in verse 5, that there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. In verse 6, he tells us that before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass. And he also tells us, literally in the Greek, that he sees in the center of the throne and around the throne four living creatures. In verse 9, he speaks of him who sits on the throne In verse 10, he speaks of him who sits on the throne and he speaks of those who cast their crowns before the throne also in this chapter. All in all, beginning in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of chapter 4, we will have the word for throne mentioned 16 times over the space of 13 verses. And in this chapter that we're going to be looking at today, John is afforded a prolonged look at the power center of the entire spiritual and physical universe where the decisions are made regarding human history and the way history will culminate. And John invites us to look together with him at what he sees and what he hears And in this chapter, we're not just taught about the throne of God, but we're taught about the relationship of things and beings to the throne. Everything that John describes in this chapter, he's going to describe in terms of its relationship to the throne of God, a fact which ought to impact us in a couple of ways. First of all, we should all be left with a throne-centered worldview, evaluating everything we see in terms of its relationship to the throne of God. And secondly, we should be left evaluating our own life in terms of our relationship to the throne of God. We should be left asking ourselves, what is my relationship to the throne of God Almighty? Am I against the throne? Am I away from the throne, denying the existence of God's throne? Or am I before the throne, worshiping and praising the one who sits on the throne? What is my place and what is my posture with regard to the throne of God? And I hope all of us will be asking those kinds of questions as we work through this chapter this morning. The way we'll frame our study of this chapter is we'll observe six developments in John's personal encounter with the throne of God. Six developments in the Apostle John's personal encounter with the throne of God. Number one, Jesus invites John into heaven to see the future that must take place. Jesus invites John into heaven to see the future that must take place. Observe what John says in verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. So John finishes describing his vision of Christ and 
writing Christ's letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor that we found recorded in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And then he says, after these things I looked. We don't know how much time went by when John is doing this look here, when he sees the vision that he's about to describe. It could have been right away, or it may have come hours later, or even days later. But whenever it happened, John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Imagine seeing something like that. John probably immediately knew that this door that is opened was for him. And yet he says here that it was standing open in heaven. And the problem is John is here on earth staring up at it. Upon seeing this door, John knows intuitively that this door was for him, yet he would have felt a keen sense of distance between himself and this heavenly door. And he was no doubt left wondering, how will I ever get to this door that seems opened for me? What John needs is a miracle. What he needs is an effectual word from Jesus, and he gets it. He says in verse 1, And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what may, must take place after these things. The first voice that John had heard back in chapter 1 was the voice of Jesus, which is now speaking to John again, at the beginning of the second vision. And when Jesus speaks to John, he says to him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. In other words, after this present era, after the things that you've just written about John in the letters to the churches. Jesus is inviting John to come through this open door and to see the future, to see the things that must take place after these things. Back in Revelation 1.9, you might want to write that reference down. Chapter 1, verse 19, I'm sorry. Revelation 1.19, Jesus spoke to John and he said, Write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. Well, John has already written the things that he saw initially. And he's already written of the things which are, which is what he wrote to the churches. But now Jesus is inviting John to come through this open door and see the future to see what must take place after these things. And you might want to underline that word must. Jesus wants John not merely to see the future, but to see the future that must happen. He wants John to see not a random unfolding of future events, but to see a future that is purposeful and foreordained by God in order to perfectly achieve God's sovereign purposes in bringing history to its intended culmination. Come and see these things that must take place after these things. 
Before we move on, I want you to notice something else about Jesus' invitation here. You'll notice in Revelation 1, 2, and 3 that the word church is used, I believe, 15 times. And we clearly see that the church is on earth in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. We also saw how Jesus was speaking to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. And he promised the church that he would keep them out of the hour of trial that is about to come upon the whole world. Well, this hour of trial that will come upon the whole world begins essentially in Revelation 6. And what we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is the heavenly prelude to that hour of trial. And interestingly, right here in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus says to John, come up here. And from this point on, John will witness what follows from the vantage point of heaven. While this passage does not explicitly teach the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, it does so happen that it is at this very point in the timeline of history when Jesus will rapture the church and will essentially say to the church, come up here. As John Walvoord says, though there is no authority for connecting the rapture with this invitation of Jesus to John to come up here, this sequence does seem to typify the order of events. That is, the church age first, then the rapture, then the church is in heaven, and we see the events of Revelation 6 and following unfold. Whatever your view on the timing of the rapture may be, clearly this invitation from Jesus to John is a powerful invitation. It's an effectual invitation, the kind of invitation that makes what is spoken actually come to pass. This brings us to the second development in this account of John's personal encounter with the throne of God Number two, John is supernaturally enabled to see God sitting up on his throne. He is supernaturally enabled to see God sitting up on his throne. Observe what happens in verse two. Jesus speaks his invitation to John, and then John says the following in verse two. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. It seems, guys, that John does not even remember consciously accepting Jesus' invitation. All he remembers is that one moment he's staring up at a heavenly opened door, wondering how he could get into that door or through that door. And then he hears Jesus say, come up here. And the next thing he knows is he's immediately in the spirit and lifted up and brought through this heavenly opened door. And now he finds himself staring at the throne of God. This is the power of the Lord Jesus to bring his spoken word to pass in the life of the Apostle John. 
Imagine one moment you're doing whatever, the next moment you see a door open, Jesus speaks an invitation, and then the next thing you know, you're in the Spirit staring at the very throne of God. At the end of verse 2, John begins to tell us what he sees upon coming through this open door. First of all, he says, Behold, a throne was standing in heaven. Meaning this throne was sitting upright in its appropriate place. Then John says that he sees one sitting on the throne. John notices that this throne is not vacant but that there was clearly a person sitting on the throne. And we're going to find out in the coming verses that this person is none other than God. And let's not skip over how important just these two things are that John is saying that he saw. Imagine if John had come through this heavenly open door and saw the throne of God and it was vacant Imagine that he sees this throne and notices that it was not standing, but it had been toppled over. If that's what he saw, he might have thought, I guess that explains why things are so crazy on earth right now and why evil seems to be triumphing. But this is not what John sees. While history unfolds among the affairs of men and while the churches struggle with sin, in their midst and persecution from without while false prophets ply their trade and lead souls astray and while Satan rages and assails the church again and again and again, John looks and sees a throne that was standing in heaven. And he also sees one sitting on the throne in perfect control. We all know how powerful of a truth this is, right? We all say this to each other whenever things seem out of control and chaotic and we see outcomes on earth that we do not desire. God is on the throne, we will say, because this truth is a comforting truth to us, right? And John is actually brought through a heavenly door where he sees this reality with his own eyes. And he's saying to us here, guys, I've been to the very throne room of God. And his throne is standing upright. And God is seated on his throne in perfect sovereign control. I've seen that with my own eyes. This sight would have brought immeasurable comfort to John in the present, but remember that Jesus has invited John to come up and to see the future that must take place. It will become evident from Revelation 4 and 5 that John is not merely looking at what is happening currently in heaven, but he's at some future point in heaven. John has been ushered into the future And the sight that he is beholding is something that still lies in the future from our vantage point right now on earth. As for this one who is sitting on the throne, John struggles to describe him. He says in verse 3, And he who was sitting 
was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. I'm sure these words were written by John and he's like, this does not do it justice. But this is the best that John can do. The jasper stone gave off a reddish hue, but a number of commentators suggest that the word jasper, the word that is translated jasper here, should be understood as what we would call a diamond today, given the fact that jasper is described as crystal clear in Revelation 21.11. As for the sardius stone, it was fiery red in its appearance. It's hard for us to visualize what it is that John is seeing, but John is trying to tell us that he sees a person sitting on this throne, and this person is strikingly beautiful and brilliant. The commentator Linsky is probably right when he says, let us think of the flashing white light of the diamond and of the brilliant burning red of the glowing sardius stone. In addition to this, John continues and says, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in its appearance. The Greek word that is translated rainbow is actually the Greek word iris, like the iris in your eye that surrounds your pupil. He sees an iris around the throne. Some writers view this as more of a halo going completely around the throne horizontally. Others view it as what we would normally think of as a rainbow going around and above the throne of God. Or you can just think of the iris of an eyeball and imagine that this is something like the corona of light radiating from the throne of God. And John describes this iris as being like an emerald in its appearance with various shades of green and blue predominating. How beautiful God must have appeared to John and to his eyes at this moment as God sits on his throne clothed in light, beautiful light of white and red and emerald. But God is not all that John sees on this occasion. This brings us to the third development in John's experience of the throne of God. Number three, John sees 24 elders around the throne. He sees 24 elders around the throne. Observe what he sees in verse 4. He says, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. That these elders would be sitting on their thrones means that they are in positions of ruling at God's behest with an authority that derives from God himself. John may not have known whether these elders are sitting on these thrones all the time. 
in his mind at this point, the fact that they are all in place and seated on their thrones around the throne of God suggests that something truly epic is about to happen. Whatever this is, some long-awaited time has come and all these elders have been summoned to this council and they're all seated on their thrones for this council with God Himself. As for who these elders are, uh, I think we have some clues from the text itself, although I would encourage you guys to study this out because there's a variety of opinions. First of all, they're called elders or presbyters. This is a title that we don't normally think of as speaking of angels, but as leaders among the people of God in the Old Testament. We often have reference to the elders of the people. In the New Testament, it was elders, it is elders, who lead the church and who preach and who teach God's word to the church. There are commentators who think that these presbyters here in this passage are angels, but our first thought on seeing them called elders is that they would be human men. In fact, there is no clear-cut instance of angels being referred to as presbyters or elders in all of the Bible. Another observation we can make about these elders is that John says they're sitting on thrones. And you will recall that Jesus just promised the Laodiceans in Revelation 3, 21, that if they overcame, he would grant to them to sit down with him on his throne. So to then, almost right away, just a few verses later, to see elders sitting on heavenly thrones around the throne of God should make us immediately, I think, wonder if these elders are particular Christians who overcame. Then we also read in verse 4 where John tells us that these elders are clothed in white garments. And we recall that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus had promised the church of Sardis that he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. He also said to them that the one who has not polluted his garments will walk with me in white. So to now see these 24 elders seated on thrones and dressed in white should make us strongly suspect, I think, that these 24 elders are representative of Christian overcomers from among the churches. Then we read where John says that these 24 elders had golden crowns. This is that Greek word stephanos. Each of them had a golden stephanos on his head. And we then remember that Jesus had told the faithful in the church of Smyrna that he would give to them the crown of life or the stephanos of life in Revelation 2.10. And he also told the Christians in the church of Philadelphia to hold fast what they have so that no one can take your stephanos or crown. We see that in Revelation 3.11. In both of these passages, the word stephanos is used, not the diadem of rulers, 
but the garland crown that represents honor and victory. So whoever these 24 elders are, they seem to be overcomers who have triumphed and have been given this golden Stephanos of honor for the triumph that they have achieved. Again, there's a variety of viewpoints on this, but to my way of thinking, the fact that every single description that John gives us of these 24 elders is found in Jesus' promises to the churches seems to point very strongly toward the conclusion that these 24 elders are overcomers from the churches. The fact that they are called elders here suggests that we should take them to be premier representatives among the overcomers. John MacArthur sees them as glorified saints who are representatives of the raptured, glorified, and crowned church. No doubt these 24 elders oversee various other levels of heavenly thrones and dominions that are not a part of the scene that John is witnessing here But these 24 are the highest among them, so much so that they're directly seated around the throne of God himself. And it seems that they are all assembled and in place for a most august council because something truly epic is about to happen. John is not done looking around, though, and making observations. He sees other things as well, which leads us to the fourth development in this account of his personal encounter with the throne of God. Number four, John observes other noteworthy things in relation to the throne. He observes other noteworthy things in relation to the throne. Listen to what he says in verse five. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. It's possible that lightning and thunder are always emanating from God's throne, but it's also very possible that this lightning and this thunder that John is observing in this future moment serve as harbingers of the wrath of God. Of God and the judgments that are about to be poured out upon the earth. If you've already read the chapters that follow, and many of us did through our summer advance reading this past summer, you know there's a storm coming to earth. And this storm will emanate from here, where the wrath of God has been stored up and held in reserve for this day. John is seeing brilliant flashes of lightning and then hearing the rumble and the ear-splitting explosions of thunder, the likes of which, guys, we can only imagine. Something is brewing. Something wonderful and awful is brewing. And whatever it is that is brewing emanates from the throne of God himself. John then tells us that there were Seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which he then tells us, which are the seven spirits of God. You'll be interested to know that the Greek word translated lamps here, 
is the Greek word lampus, which is a different word than the word translated lampstands back in Revelation 1 and 2. This is the word for torches that John is using here. And John tells us that these torches are the seven spirits of God. And this is now already in the book of Revelation the third time we have seen reference to the seven spirits of God. And we have been taking this as a reference to the sevenfold spirit of God. The Holy Spirit who always does everything that he does in utter completeness and perfection represented by the number seven. We should not be surprised to see that the Spirit here is depicted as torches of fire, given the fact that when the Spirit was poured out on the 120 on the day of Pentecost, back in Acts chapter 2, he did so in the form of tongues of fire that distributed themselves onto each of the 120 in a visible way. That was a good fire. But as Robert Thomas says here, fire in the book of Revelation symbolizes judgment, and these torches are no exception. Here is the divine preparedness for the battle against wickedness. The sevenfold spirit is before the Father's throne in the form of fiery torches ready to do the Father's bidding as he makes war in the coming chapters against those who dwell upon the earth. There's something else that John notices, which he describes in verse 6. Listen to what he says in verse 6. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. John is struggling to describe what he sees here. Notice that John does not say here that before the throne was a sea of glass, but that there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. It wasn't a sea, but in a way it looked like a sea, a sea made of glass. In all likelihood, John is describing here a vast pavement of glass shining brilliantly like sparkling crystal. This crystal-like glass pavement looks like a sea of water that is when water is perfectly still. It is massive, like a sea would be. It is transparent, and it sparkles like crystal. In fact, the Greek word used here is crystallos. We get our English word crystal from this very Greek word. And it, this whole thing adds to the staggering beauty and majesty of what John is beholding. John continues looking and he sees something else quite remarkable that he wants to tell us about. This leads us to the fifth development in his account of his personal encounter with the throne of God Number five, John witnesses four living creatures around the throne praising God. John witnesses four living creatures around the throne praising God. Listen to what John says in verses six and seven. It says, and in the center and around the throne, 
literally in the center of the throne and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third creature had a face like that of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Breaking this down, John is saying here that he sees these creatures literally in the center of the throne and around the throne. When he says in the center, it's hard to know exactly what he is talking about, but he's probably speaking of them as being in between the throne of God and where the 24 elders are seated around the throne. So imagine the 24 elders seated in thrones that make a circle around the throne of God or maybe a half circle, and then in between them and the throne of God are these four creatures that are literally living beings is how John describes them. What these creatures have in common is that they're living beings, they're alive, and that they are full of eyes in front and behind. In verse 8, he tells us that they each had six wings and that they were full of eyes around and within. So they had eyeballs in the front and in the back and even within them. This is impossibly hard for us to visualize. And, and in a way, to visualize and not be freaked out by these creatures. When our family was reading this chapter for our summer advance reading this past summer, my wife uh, reacted audibly. She was grossed out by these creatures having so many eyeballs. I mean, looking at an iPhone for her, looking at an iPhone with three camera lenses gives my wife the heebie-jeebies. So these creatures being full of eyes in the front and in the back and within gives her a really weird feeling trying to, when she visualizes them. And it's hard for us to read these words and to imagine creatures with so many eyes being beautiful. But we can be sure that they are. There is nothing that we would think grotesque in God's presence. These are stunning beings, living beings. And the fact that they have so many eyes indicates that Nothing escapes their notice. Their eyes are designed to give them the ability to see everything that happens in heaven and on earth. As Dr. Robert Thomas says, nothing relevant to their sphere of responsibility happens without their knowledge. They miss nothing that they are supposed to see. And we're going to see in Revelation 6 that each of these beings will call forth one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which seems to reveal that these living beings have some function as mediators of divine justice upon the world. We'll be encountering these living beings again 
as the narrative of Revelation continues to unfold. John has told us in verse 6 what these living beings have in common. In verse 7, he tells us how they're different from one another. He says the first creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. And this could be translated as ox or bull. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. These living beings were not a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle, but they were like them, John says, and were left to wonder why. There's actually an ancient saying in the Jewish Talmud dating from A.D. 300 that goes like this, and I quote, The mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull. The mightiest among the wild beast is the lion. And the mightiest among all is man. And right there you have all four animals named that are mentioned in identifying or describing these living creatures. As Leon Morris says, the likeness of each of these creatures is perhaps designed to reflect whatever is noblest and strongest, wisest and swiftest in animate nature, taking its part in the fulfillment of the divine will and the worship of the divine majesty. As for what these creatures are doing, look at what John says in verse 8. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. They are saying so much about God here. First, they are declaring that He is holy, 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 just like the seraphim of Isaiah 6 do. This is like saying God is holy with three exclamation points. These living beings are proclaiming that God is utterly set apart. He's utterly distinct, completely separated from the defilement of sin in absolutely every way. He is a holy God who governs the world and he will be acting in perfect holiness in all that he is about to unleash upon the world. Secondly, they're referring to him as the Lord God, the Almighty. Speaking of him as the strongest, most powerful being, utterly devoid of any weakness, whose conquering power and overpowering strength no one can oppose. And thirdly, they describe him as the one who was and who is and who is to come. On earth, we have kingdoms and we have presidential administrations that come and go through death or through defeat. But God is eternally the Almighty One. He is the Almighty Lord God who was, who is, who is to come. And this will never, ever change. God will never die, He will never be defeated. He will never be knocked off of his throne, nor will he ever, ever be voted out of office. 
this vision of God that John is seeing and then even the words that these living beings are expressing as they're describing the God that they are worshiping would have been so helpful for John's readers and for us today. As one writer says, John's readers lived in a world, as we do, where evil was rampant and apparently where evil was all-powerful, where goodness seemed weak and frustrated and ineffectual. But here, with this vision, they would see that real power is not with evil, but with God, who is holy. If you are ever left wondering if goodness and righteousness are lame sauce compared to evil, just remember that the being who sits on the throne of the physical and the spiritual universe is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And John says that these living beings are uttering these words day and night and they do not cease to say these things about God. In using day and night language here, John is telling us here on earth that every day and every night that we are living in this broken world, these creatures are in heaven singing the praises of the Lord God who is almighty and holy who was and is and who is to come. And there is nothing that ever happens on earth in any of our days or in any of our nights that causes them to cease their praises and to second guess what they're saying about God. So think about it. The day before our presidential election a few weeks ago, these living beings were singing the praises of God as being holy, the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And the day after the election, they were still proclaiming the same praises about God. And they do that day and night. Every day and every night that passes here in this broken world. These living beings are not the only ones praising God in this scene. This leads us to the final development in John's account of his experience of the throne of God. Number six, John witnesses the 24 elders worshiping God. John witnesses the 24 elders worshiping God. Observe what John says in verses 9 through 11. And I want you to pay attention to the fact that there's a change of tenses here. John has been speaking in the present tense, but he switches to the future tense in verse 9. He says in verse 9, And when the living creatures literally will give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever. And stop right there for just a second. Why does John shift to the future tense here? Well, up to this moment, he's been using the present tense because what he has been seeing is in the present in terms of his own experience in the moment. But John is still mindful of the fact that what he is seeing is still future for us 
his readers. So for our benefit, he describes what he is seeing as something that has not yet happened exactly this way from our vantage point. And John literally says that based on what he is seeing as Christ has brought him into the future, when it happens that these living creatures will give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. In other words, these 24 elders will vacate their thrones and fall down before God who sits on his throne and they're going to worship him in that posture. And as an act of worship, John says that they will cast their stephanos, their crowns before the throne. In other words, each one of them is going to take the stephanos of victory that God has given to them for overcoming, and they're going to cast their stephanos before the throne of God, basically saying to God, the victory that we achieved and the honor that you have given to us is yours. It came from you, and all the glory should go back to you. Because even our overcoming is something that you get all the credit and the glory for. In fact, listen to what they say in verse 11. As they bow and cast their crowns before the throne, they're going to be saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Notice, guys, what they say that God is worthy to receive, glory and honor and power. What makes these words so powerful coming from these elders is that they themselves had received glory and honor and power from God. In fact, they're in the highest position of glory and honor and power that any human being could ever achieve. Yet they're not clutching onto such things or taking any pride in them. They want all glory and honor and power to go to God. God gives them a throne And what are they doing? They're falling off of their throne as if to say, God, to you be this power that you have given to us. God gives them their golden crowns of glory and honor and they cast these crowns at his feet to say, to you be this glory and honor. This, guys, is the spirit of heaven And this is the back and forth dance that all saints are going to dance for all of eternity. God will bless us with glory and honor and power far beyond what we would have ever expected or asked for. And we're going to spend eternity wanting to give it all back to him and saying to him, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive the very glory and the very honor and the very power that you have given to us. If there is anything that heaven is to be noted for, 
It will be the complete absence of self-absorption and pride. In heaven, guys, you're going to see beings and angels and redeemed saints in staggering glory like you've never seen here on earth. And none of these splendid beings will be self-absorbed and stuck on themselves. They're all going to be utterly consumed with God and wanting to talk about Him and wanting all the glory to go to Him just as these 24 elders are falling off of their thrones, casting their crowns at His feet and pronouncing Him to be worthy of all glory and honor and power. Heaven throbs with this sentiment. And the reason they give, first of all, they say, for you created all things. God, you created us. You created these thrones. You created these crowns that we are wearing. You created these white garments that we are clothed in. You created all things, the world and all that the world contains Secondly, they say, because of your will, they existed and were created. Guys, there are many glorious reasons to worship the God of heaven, and we're going to see additional reasons in the next chapter. But these elders here in this moment are worshiping God for creating all things, including themselves, and for the fact that everything in existence exists because of His will. What unimaginable power. This is enough reason alone to worship the God of heaven. There's not one molecule in existence that exists apart from his will. Everything that exists, exists because he has willed it to be so in his sovereign decrees. All of this means that you yourself exist for a reason because God created you. He created your parents from whom you came. He created all that sustains your life from day to day. Every legitimate pleasure you ever experience in life is a result of His creative handiwork. You are not the product of random, chaotic chance that happened to evolve from primordial slime, you were created by God. And you exist because it is His will that you exist. And for that reason alone, there's other reasons, but for that reason alone, you should worship God. But this is not what we have done through human history, is it? Even in our own lives, the human race was created by God to bear his image, to reflect God's amazing glory. But we have gone our own way. We've been rebelling against him and living for our own pathetic glory instead. This is why God sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we failed to live Jesus lived every second of every day on this earth totally consumed with the glory of His Father. He lived for the glory of His Father and then He died on the cross. And what did the Father do? The Father raised Him from the dead and seated Jesus at His own right hand. 
and has given Jesus a glory and an honor and a power the likes of which we can't even imagine. We live for our own glory, and that sends us downward. Jesus lived wholly for the glory of God, and he now has the highest position of honor and glory in all of reality. What we learn from the life of Jesus, and even from these 24 elders, is this. If you lay aside your passion for your own glory, and you live for God's glory instead, God will glorify you far better than you ever could have glorified yourself. If you will give him the center of your life and then begin to orbit around him. Contrary to how these 24 elders are glorifying God, consider what we have done. In Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul is describing the fallen human race and he says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, They did not honor, literally, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And what follows is God handing them over stage by stage to spiritual ruin. Yet, by way of contrast, look at how these triumphant elders are worshiping God. God creates them. They're celebrating Him as the creator of all things, which is no doubt what they did when they were on earth as redeemed ones. And instead of handing them over to spiritual ruin, what has God done? He has lifted them up to unbelievable heights of glory. He's seated them on thrones close to Him. He's glorified them and He has dressed them in white and crowned them with golden crowns. He's given them more glory and more honor than they even want. So much so that they're falling from their thrones. And they're taking their crowns off of their heads and throwing them back at God almost as if to say it's too much. We would have been fine just to be with you in heaven without these thrones and these crowns and all of this glory and honor and blessing to you be all of these things. This is the goodness of God. If you exalt yourself and live for your own glory, you're going to be brought to the depths of hell. But if you humble yourself and make yourself all about glorifying God, He will give you more glory than you will know what to do with. So much so that you will be falling off of your throne and having and casting casting your crown back at His feet only to have Him give you your crown back and sit you back on your throne that He has given you. What is not to love about a God like this? Is He not worthy of our highest worship? Is it not time for you and me to vacate the center 
and let God have the center of our lives. And then we just orbit around him and live for his glory, knowing that he will take good care of us and glorify us with more glory than we're going to know what to do with. God is a wonderful God, and we're so blessed to just be able to have this glimpse of him in this chapter, and then even to see the the sensibility of those around his throne and how they're worshiping him, which gives us cues for how we should live our life today in the here and now. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, I don't know what our problem is. I don't know what my problem is. I'm so full of me, so full of self. I can be so petty when there is something infinitely greater to occupy my heart, my imagination, my affections. And I pray, Lord, that this glimpse of you that we see in this chapter would we would just get lost in the sea of your immensity and your glory and that we would truly vacate the center and give you the center of our lives and say you know what I don't, I don't want things to revolve around me I can't bear the burden of that I, w- I want my life to revolve around this being who is so glorious and loving who glorifies those who worship him with the glory that's greater than they even know what to do with. And as we make our way through this fallen, broken world of sorrow and woe and disappointment and heartache, may we always have a clear line of sight to you on your throne and find peace and perspective there. And then help us, Lord, to worship you as the living creatures do and the 24 elders. In fact, every time we worship you, we're just simply joining that mighty chorus. We're adding our voice to theirs. And when you hear us worshiping you, you're hearing us accompanied by them. And so that's just so, these things, there's just not words to describe the glory of them. And if you are truly this glorious Lord, uh, may we spend our days telling others about you. And as glorious as this is, Lord, we haven't even gotten into chapter 5 when the Lamb is going to show up. And everyone's going to go crazy in chapter 5. It's even better than what we've seen in chapter 4. You yourself are exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could imagine. But we thank you for what you have revealed to us of your glory and love and ask, Lord, that it would change us and make us live differently during the days of this week than maybe we lived this past week. 
And we ask all of these things and give our worship to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,